98.7 FM. 98.7 FM. Arizona's sports station. Are you sitting comfortably? Yeah. Then I'll begin. Okay. Here we go. Arizona sports goes local. Local. That is awesome. We're giving the mic to local hosts right here in Phoenix. Whoa, snap. Because what's a Saturday without sports? FM, Arizona's Sports Station, Arizona Sports Saturday. And a happy Saturday to all of you out there listening. This is Arizona Sports Saturday, live from the Auction Community Studios. This is your weekend stop for live and local sports talk. Mitch Vareldis, Steve Zinsmeister, Trevor Henry behind the glass. Steve, this is a monumental Saturday. Do you know why? Because we are essentially a Cardinals pregame show. Basically. <laughs> I was going to say, however, college football started today. Oh, yeah. It is back. Football is back, Steve. Well, I mean, the NFL football was already back. Preseason. I really do count. not count preseason. When yeah. the regular season starts, I'm full go. I had, That's why today is huge for college football fans. Yeah, well, and, and today, obviously, you get a Cardinals game, like I mentioned. So we're going to take you up to 1230 when Cardinals pregame starts today. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third and final preseason game uh, of this season. I think it's interesting, and I've been wondering this all along. And we're starting to see more and more of the third preseason games happening, and and I'm starting to get a clearer picture. But because the season used to have four preseason games, right? The fourth, the third one used to be when everyone played. You'd get half a game, or it used or a to be quarter. the exciting one. Yeah, you'd get to see Kyler Murray, you'd get to see DeAndre Hopkins, you'd get to see all the starters. JJ Watt would play all that stuff, right? And then the fourth preseason game was the one where everybody sat out, nobody yes. played. Because you didn't want to get injured right before the start of the season, but now that there's only three preseason games, I've, instead I've nobody been in, plays. Right, any I, of the games. <laughs> I've been intrigued whether or not teams were going to treat the third like they used to treat the fourth, and so that's what I'm going to be looking at today when we watch the Cardinals play. Well, so I know this. Obviously, the teams that are still trying to figure out who's going to be starters in certain places, you see them a lot during the preseason. And then there's Kansas City who will play Patrick Mahomes in all the preseason games. Why? I don't know. Yeah, I haven't figured that out either. You know, let them do their own thing. It's whatever. It's fine. The Cardinals' own thing is to not really put any of their starters out there, which you and I have had this discussion a few weeks ago about guaranteed starters playing in the preseason. I personally don't think it's worth it, so I'm very full go with the Cardinals' plan here. But, you know, not everybody has fully solidified their spot. And this could be the third consecutive week we see the names Zayvon Collins and Marco Wilson lining up in preseason snaps tonight. Mostly because I don't think either of them have even guaranteed a starting spot. Uh, Yeah, probably not. Specifically starting spot. I think they're 53 guys. I don't think they're starters yet. Clearly. Otherwise, they wouldn't be playing. So when do final cutdowns come? Tomorrow? I believe so. I believe so. Okay, so if we see final cutdowns tomorrow, there's a handful of guys that... uh, Wasn't Gambo talking yesterday about a couple of guys that are probably likely to make the team? Yeah, he he mentioned at the top of the show that the guys he's hearing guaranteed to make it... Right. Daryl Williams, the running back from Kansas City, who they signed to a veteran's minimum. Andy Isabella, who's the, at this point, infamous wide receiver who came back in the Josh Rosen trade, basically... And then Victor Mukeji, who had a great showing in the first preseason game. Didn't hear his name a whole bunch in the second preseason game, but it sounds like he's locked up a spot. 
Well, and even if uh, it, with Demukeji in particular, I think to myself, even if he makes the squad. Uh, but doesn't really have a role. Is there a possibility of trading a guy like that who impressed in the preseason? Sure. And there's a possibility. You could move any of these guys. But yeah, watching the 53 come together is really the best part of the final preseason game. We're going to see some position battles tonight. Obviously, none of them are for starting spots or not very many of them. As not a mentioned. ton. No. Um, I'm I'm interested too because I thought during the first two preseason games that we were watching Will Hernandez, who was a, in my mind was a starter. I think we all kind of thought he was a solidified starter at right guard. And then they go out and make this trade for Cody Ford. So it appears, at least to me, that Cody Ford is going to be the starter at right guard. And now we're starting to realize, Will Hernandez, why he was playing so much. See, I think now now you mention that, and I feel like it's become a battle. But at the same time... Maybe it is. I I don't know. It's a comfort depth-wise. Because... I remember there was a conversation like, do we even know how many offensive li- I believe it was on the broadcast with Passion Wolf. Typically, you keep nine linemen, right? But Typically. who are those nine linemen? Do they even have a guaranteed five? So I think that kind of sheds a little more light onto this trade for Ford. And you have to imagine he's going to make the 53. They traded a fifth rounder for him. Yeah, essentially Oklahoma Sooners 2.0. Uh, yeah. You've got the quarterback, offensive lineman, wide receiver from that team. I think that's pretty cool. But yeah, you're starting to really see the team take shape. And I think that's a good thing. I think all eyes are still going to be on Zaven Collins. That's a thing that's going to be continuous. That's not going to end with the preseason because we're no. going to watch him play in the regular season. And I'll tell you what, if... If we're starting to make opinions based off of his snaps tonight, heck, even his snap count tonight, and we don't notice Zayvon Collins tonight, then you start to wonder who's really at fault here. I don't think we should be looking at snap counts. If if I I'm I'm not an expert at this, but what I try to do during a football game, if I'm keeping an eye on a particular player, and this preseason it's been Zayvon Collins for me defensively. Mm-hmm. What you should watch for is during plays when he's actually on the field. Follow along and see how close he is to the ball on each play. If it's a run play, how close is he to being the one that made the tackle? Because he's not going to be the one to make the tackle every play. Is he reading uh, the offensive and defensive lines well? And what I mean by that is if he is tracking a ball carrier, is he getting between the guards, between the tackles? Is he getting into those gaps? During passing plays, is he dropping back? And if he is, how close is he to the defender or the receiver, I mean, that he's trying to track? Those things are important. Okay, so I'll rephrase it then. Not the number of snaps, but the quality of the snaps that he does get. Absolutely. I want to see him around the ball. There was last week, he had a great hunt, if you will, getting into the backfield, that tackle for loss, he had four yards, and then on the very next play, he swallowed up by an O-lineman. And it's... And you start to wonder, okay, so which Zayvon Collins are we actually going to get during the regular season? And heck, even in this final preseason game, he still looks lost. Yeah. Is he getting... Here's here's what I really want to know. If he's this lost, but he's this talented that he was a top 16 pick, who's really at fault here? Is it the developmental staff? Is it Zayvon himself? Is it the scouting for believing that this guy was way more talented than he actually is? I think a lot of people saw last year when Jordan Hicks kind of reclaimed his starting role. Because remember, they were talking about trading Jordan Hicks, and did they try to trade Jordan Hicks, and then he didn't get in, end up getting traded. And Zayden then he played Collins, more defensive snaps than anybody on the team last year. Right. Made a ton of tackles, and then the team was still willing to let him go. 
And you think about that and you're like, well, wait a minute. If it was Jordan Hicks really good and he deserved that spot or was Zayvon Collins really bad and they just needed an alternative? The That's team goes point. out in free agency and gets Nick Vigil, who's a veteran linebacker. I wouldn't say he's on Jordan Hicks level. I would say it's a cheaper replacement. That's what it feels like. It's, That's not to discount Nick Vigil, but it is a comparison to you just let Jordan Hicks walk. He wanted a little more money. And he was playing super well for you. It's just felt like the Cardinals were hedging their bet with Collins all along. Like, yeah, we drafted him in the first round. We really love him. We think he's very talented. We think he can be really good in this league. But we're also going to let Jordan Hicks be the play caller on the defense. We're also going to go find Nick Vigil in the offseason. And I don't know how big of a role Vigil plays, but I assume he's going to play a lot. I think Turner's probably going to end up being called upon a bunch um, so, yeah, they're just kind of hedging their bet a little bit with Collins, just in case. Well, I will again start to wonder if Vigil is the one getting the primary amount of snaps alongside Isaiah Simmons if they run 3-4. I don't think Simmons is going to play a lot of middle linebacker. You don't think so? I, I keep seeing video of him running so you with think the safeties. They'll, they'll run and, a lot of nickel sets, you think, and where he's how, just the fifth guy? And with how slim they are at corner, I wouldn't be surprised to see him uh, tracking receivers this season. Not uh, every play. Okay, you mentioned slim at corner. Yeah, uh, that's a position group I'm really starting to worry about. And it wasn't even until this week. So you remember two weeks ago, Cliff Kingsbury was raving about Antonio Hamilton, basically said he was basically their number two guy at this point. Antonio Hamilton hasn't practiced all week. He had a doctor's appointment, didn't travel with the team to Tennessee. And then Cliff on the 24th. So that was three days ago. So Wednesday, I believe. They, he was asked what is wrong with Antonio Hamilton because he's missed another day of practice. Um, we'll let you know week one when we have to. I'm sorry, when what was we have to. Sorry, what was that? Um, we'll let you know week one when we have to. Okay, but are there any concerns? Uh, no, no, he's still being evaluated um, right now. Boy, oh boy. Okay, so then how serious of whatever this incident is or whatever the situation is, is this? Worth noting, They're not the way, worried, but they're not telling us. This happens with the Cardinals seemingly every season. That there is, remember how many years we went where Patrick Peterson was solidified as your number one, but you never knew who the number two was. For a while, they were, uh, they were trying out uh, Antonio Cromartie, who played really well. Uh, then they traded for Marcus Cooper, and he made a Pro Bowl. And but they keep they keep rotating through corners and rotating through corners, and you don't know who it is. Byron Murphy, I think, has been a pretty good player. Uh, Gambo's talked a lot about how he might be up for an extension pretty soon, but mm-hmm. at the same time, they're not talking about him being the number two. They're talking about Antonio uh, Ham- Hamilton. I mean, are they even talking about Murphy being number one? I don't think so. I mean, like, look, he's not playing in preseason, so I, think I imagine Wilson's they know what he's going to be in the mix. He has to be. That's why he's getting these reps, because he's not impressing so far. And none of those guys are really the ideal size for a corner, in my opinion. I thought Jeff Gladney was kind of signed for that reason. He had high upside and was that level of of player and physicality. But we all know what happened with Jeff Gladney. Unfortunately, passed away in the offseason. But they didn't really attempt to fill that void after losing Gladney. His death was, what, a month and a half ago? It was a while ago. About They've had months. opportunities. They haven't done anything. Well, Gambo talked about how Kevin King might be an option, who's still out there, by the way. Pretty decent cornerback. Could at least come in and be competitive with these other guys and push them a little. He's still out there, but the preseason's ending. It doesn't mean you can't bring him in during the regular season, but the clock's running out on that decision. It's the first time we've really had a member of the Suns talk on record about the Kevin Durant trade rumors. And since Kevin Durant is not going anywhere... What do the Suns think of it now?
That's next on Arizona Sports Saturday. 98.7 FM, Arizona's Sports Station. Arizona Sports Saturday. Hey, thanks for checking out Arizona Sports Saturday. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. Steve Zinsmeister, Mitch Vareldis with you. Trevor Henry is behind the glass for us. It's the story that just wouldn't go away this summer. And I'm ready to put it to bed. But it gave us a great summer, did it not? It gave us a lot to talk about. But in the end, we did not end up with Kevin Durant in the city of Phoenix. No, we did not. To kind of glance back at what happened this summer. There were, after the horrible Game 7 against the Dallas Mavericks... I'm telling you, I walked out of that building and everyone was talking in the street about how do we get Kevin Durant? How do we get Damian Lillard? How do we get XYZ? LeBron James, I even heard. So really quick, that final game was what? May, middle of May? I don't remember the day. And then the first trade request came on June 30th. So all those fans that were complaining about, okay, how do we get this person? Literally a month and a half. Before that even became a possibility. Before it became a possibility. Month and a half. Boom. So then, like you talked about in June, Kevin Durant uh, basically demands a trade from the Brooklyn Nets. Can't say I blame him because Kyrie Irving and Ben Simmons, they just don't love basketball. Right. That experiment just hasn't worked out to this point. Maybe it does in the future. We'll see. Kevin Durant demands a trade. The Nets basically say, all right, well, we don't have to trade you. You're under a four-year deal. So we'll take a look around. And he says, I want to go to Phoenix. And that is the first time maybe ever that Phoenix Suns fans felt like a megastar in the NBA wanted to be here. It was a daily conversation. Literally daily. Like still kinda is. For us, like (laughs) we conversed about it every single week. Yeah. That it became a topic. Burns and Gambo, the show that I work on Monday through Friday, at least one conversation every single day, Monday through Friday. I mean, like, from your perspective, was news talking about this? Uh, occasionally. Hell, I would go home and my girlfriend would be like, hey, is there anything new on Kevin Durant? Right. She's not even a basketball fan. Exactly. Like, this was such a huge story. You're right. Impactful for the Valley. And yet, here we are. You know what's funny? The only thing I can remember recently that's anywhere near comparable to this situation is the little Marcus Aldridge thing. That, yeah. that had to have been 10 years ago. They put up a banner for him. Right. They were they were trying to get LaMarcus Aldridge. He was picking between Phoenix and San Antonio at the time. And it's not like LaMarcus Aldridge is Kevin Durant. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he is. No. But that was the last time that a really good player in the league, and he was at that time. He was a very good player, wanted to even consider Phoenix. Yeah. And they put up a banner for him downtown and the whole nine yards and they were recruiting him and they signed Tyson Chandler just because he was friends with LaMarcus Aldridge to try to convince him to come and then he didn't come. And now Kevin Durant has made up with the Nets apparently and they're going to try it again and we're not getting Kevin Durant. It's the same thing. We're going through the same thing again. Just put it on the pile of what ifs. What if LaMarcus Aldridge... What if Kevin Garnett? Heck, I saw the other day there was a what if for Patrick Ewing when he was still on the Knicks before he went to the Sonics. And now we've got what if Kevin Durant. You always wonder. And naturally, everyone's going to be asked about this whole Kevin Durant thing. Because remember, like the Suns are bringing back pretty much the entire team that was number one in the regular season throughout the year. Pretty much. I mean, aside from falling apart against the Mavericks, uh, which, you know, obviously you can't just take that out of the equation, but this is one of the best teams in the NBA, and they're bringing pretty much everybody back. That deserves to be said. Yes. But now the team is coming back together. You've got your head coach being asked about Kevin Durant and the whole situation. 
I never talked to any of our guys about that. Um, mm -hmm. One, people don't understand how hard trades are to pull off. And when I first heard about the Kevin Durant stuff, I was kind of blown away by it just because, you know, we've been so blessed here to have guys who want to come. At the same time, <clears throat> at the expense of what was my thinking. And mm -hmm. I like our team. I love our guys. But I wasn't going to have conversations that didn't need to be had. I think our guys are mature enough to understand that part of our business. Um, and so I didn't want to have conversations about stuff that didn't need to be brought up. And, and part of it is because I've been in the business so long. It's just hard to pull trades off, you know. And so that was my thinking. So, like, in multiple ways, he's right. Why would you have a conversation about something when you don't even know whether or not it's actually going to happen, whether or not it's actually going to impact, like, say, Mikel Bridges, his name was tossed around a bunch in the media. Cam Johnson's name tossed around a bunch. You can't force conversations about things that are not reality, I think is the best way to phrase it. So Monty Williams's approach to this whole thing, I think, was correct because... What happens if he alternatively, alternatively approaches Mikel Bridges and says, hey, you're going to see your name a lot in the media. There's a lot of work going on behind the scenes. You have to understand this is a part of the business, et cetera, et cetera. Then you're really impacting Mikel Bridges. And we know for a fact now Mikel Bridges is coming back next year. So if that conversation happens and then, oh, nope, we're not getting Kevin Durant. Sorry, it's not happening. You've really impacted one of the best players on this team for nothing. Well, and I think it's easy for a fan to look at this and say, yeah, you'd rather have Kevin Durant than all the guys that you would get rid of sure, together or sure. the first round picks that you would get rid of. But if you look at it from a coach's perspective, I'm willing to bet that for Monty especially, it's a double-edged sword to have a player of Kevin Durant's caliber. Because on the one hand, on the good side, obviously in the NBA, if you have three really great all-star level players, you're pretty much set to be a contender. And that would be great to have. I mean, he wouldn't have to worry about scoring so much because Kevin Durant's going to take care of a lot of that. Devin Booker's going to take care of a lot of that. Chris Paul on certain nights will take care of a lot of that. Mm -hmm. But on the other edge of that sword, the other double-edged side, I guess you would say, is that part of what made this team so great last year was the fact that they had 10 guys they could go to. That they had dudes on the bench who played significant roles. A 20-point night here from Cam Johnson. A 10-assist night here from Cameron Payne. Okay, but that only got you so far. It got you to be the number one team in the NBA. And it did nothing to help you in the postseason. And there's several reasons for that. Sure. But, but like, I think he still would have rather had the depth in the postseason that he uh, had. Okay, but we're talking about depth. And then what was what has been one of our biggest complaints so far this offseason? Oh, they got to replace Cam Payne. Or Cam has got to step up. Or they need another shooter off the bench. When literally Cam Johnson is that shooter off the bench, campaign was a monster in the 2021 postseason. And yet now we're back to a conversation about depth. Well, you should always be talking about ways to improve your team, but the depth never has been gone. They have depth right now. Not they in have... the regular season. It hasn't wavered. And I think this team is at a point where they need to focus more on how is this team going to be great in the postseason rather than how can we get to 64 wins again? Well, I think in the postseason, the the depth players, I don't know who you want to call those guys, everybody from 5 we'll to 10 rotational on the bench. Players, yeah, the rotational players underperformed. Yes. I didn't see a lot from Landry Shaman. I didn't see a lot from campaign. I saw almost nothing from campaign. Heck, even the starters underperformed in the postseason. 
No, I, I agree with you. But my point is simply that the roster construction was there. They yes. had the right roster. And w- you and I talked about it at the trade deadline when there were rumors that they might consider flipping Aiton for Sabonis, but that it might take extra. And how does that affect the team's chemistry? You're right. already the, the league's number one team during the regular season. Do you really need to mess with that? I mean, heck, one Do you of really the need th- to tinker with it? One of the two trades they made was purely a... Like a culture move or like a, oh, we know this guy. We're familiar with him and Tory Craig. There's the word culture. And Monty created the culture. Monty and I would I would say Chris Paul really helped, too. But it was a tandem effort. And yeah. I think Booker deserves a lot of credit in that, too. Oh, we'll ab- continue. absolutely. But the point is, you have one of the best cultures in the NBA. We talked about how fu- how much fun the guys were having, yes. how much they genuinely like each other. You don't need that to win a championship. There have been teams that disliked each other that won championships. Yeah. But at the same time, they built a culture that made those players better than they actually are. And I think if you're Monty, you're thinking to yourself, how much of that culture am I willing to sacrifice for a guy in Kevin Durant who, quite frankly, as good of a basketball player as he is, he hasn't exactly helped the team culture everywhere he went. But I mean, again, he won two championships with Golden State and then broke up with them. But again, to your point, their culture wasn't necessarily great. Some cultures can do it. They can win it all. But they also have the pieces that step up when they need them most. The non-culture teams, they guarantee to have the players that you need when the moment matters most. How are Arizona Diamondback fans going to feel when Paul Goldschmidt, legendary D-back, wins the Triple Crown and the MVP this season? We'll dive into that next on Arizona Sports Saturday. 98.7 FM, Arizona's Sports Station. It's Arizona Sports Saturday. Mitch Veraldis, Steve Zinsmeister, Trevor Henry behind the glass here on this Arizona Sports Saturday. Diamondbacks with a great win yesterday against the Chicago White Sox. A 7-2, I believe it was. Great outing from some young talent. But recently there's been a lot of talk about a former Diamondback who's on quite a historic pace and we wanted to get an up close and personal view of it so i shot a text message to a good friend of mine katie Wu. she covers the st louis cardinals for the athletic and she joins us now here on the program katie how have you been mitch what is up always fun to uh semi it feels like i'm returning to arizona even though i'm very far away and then talk to sports with a fellow sun devil it always feels good forks up baby am i right exactly there's no other way all right so i want to start with the One guy who we didn't expect to be on a historic pace this season, but he is. Paul Goldschmidt on pace to win a triple crown and the MVP. What has it been like watching this up close? You know, it's funny because Paul Goldschmidt is, as Diamondback fans obviously know, he's a very, he's very even keeled, never too high, never too low. You never see him really show too much emotion, whether it's positive or negative. He is, and, and the best word, consistent and for him to be consistently excellent he's really kind of catapulted to this cardinals team i mean you, you've mentioned it already he's in contention for the national league mvp award he could be or is at least making it interesting to see if he's the first national league triple crown winner since 1937 and he's somehow still on his own team i think underrated in terms of how much attention he's getting his production level and just how valuable he's been to the cardinals overall so Certainly fun to watch, um, but I, it's funny. We were talking to manager Ali Marmol on a Thursday when the Cardinals just wrapped up a series win over Chicago, and we asked Ali, you know, do you feel like Goldschmidt's a little bit underrated in terms of production and numbers he's been putting up? And he said, 
I certainly am not underrating him by any means. So he's at least valued by his manager and his teammates. And uh, I think that as the season goes on and we reach September, such a pivotal month for MLB, we'll continue to see Paul Goldschmidt uh, rise to the occasion. Now, Paul Goldschmidt's been an all-star seven times, but what people don't seem to realize is that six of them were in Arizona. He it, He's now in his fourth year in St. Louis. All-star, like you mentioned, could win the Triple Crown. At least it looks like he's heading that way. He might finally win his MVP award, which he's come close a bunch of times. Do Cardinals fans feel like they're finally getting the Paul Goldschmidt that they paid for four years ago? You know, I think Cardinals fans have actually felt that way all along. Uh, one thing about St. Louis is they're, you know, consistently in playoff contention or at least in the playoff conversation for Goldschmidt to even continue at an age 34 season beyond pace for such a spectacular historic season. I think Cardinals fans are even more excited. You pair that with Nolan Arenado, who's been just as good, just as consistent, and the resurgence of Albert Pools. And I feel like Cardinals fans have feel like they've hit the lottery, really, from an offensive perspective. But to answer your question, no, I think that they felt like they've gotten this Paul Goldschmidt all along, and uh, now it's maybe, I don't know, the cherry on top of of what they thought that that, uh, acquisition was. And certainly did not expect to see this kind of career season at 34 years old, but they'll take it. Katie Wu, she covers the St. Louis Cardinals for The Athletic, joining us here on the Arizona Sports Line. So you mentioned the other person who's on quite a historic chase to close out this season, and it really took notice more so as of late and even here in Arizona. Personally, I just want to know, do you think that Albert Pujols will hit 700 before the year is done? You know, it's funny because if you asked me uh, around opening day, I would have said, uh, you know, it'd be a good story. But if you asked me, like, practicality-wise, I'd say no. And then right. about the All-Star break, when you, know, you see the swing and you see the results not exactly coming to fruition, you'd be like, okay, you know, maybe, but probably not. And now I'm all in on the Chase of 700 because the second half tear that we've seen from Albert Pujols has been, and, and to put it simply, it's been legendary. I mean, the Cardinals, when, from an outside perspective, I think it's pretty easy or it'd be understandable to think when the Cardinals brought Albert back that it was a nostalgia-based signing. But the front office was adamant that they were able, going to be able to use him pretty similar to how the Dodgers used him in 2021 as the starting bat against left-handed pitching. And with the Universal DH, they thought they could really increase those appearances. And they have. I'm looking at Albert's numbers against left-handed pitching overall this season. Coming into Friday's game against Atlanta, he had the second-best OPS against left-handers. He's hitting 1.242, the only player hitting better than him against left-handed pitching in baseball this year. Well, that'd be his teammate, Paul Goldschmidt. So (laughs) watching him and his tear throughout the second half and to finish his historic, and to my opinion, first ballot Hall of Fame career, you know, I don't think that it could be scripted any better. Uh, It's been super exciting, and I would be quite shocked if he doesn't make it at least close to 700 in the final month of the season. I'm going to be honest with you, Katie. When the Cardinals were here in town facing the D-backs last week, I was cheering for Albert Pujols. Me too. He hit two homers off of Madison Bumgarner, and I did not care in the least. And that's that's strange for somebody who covers the Diamondbacks. I didn't want to do that, but, I mean, this is a, a tear... I, I'm hoping that he gets to 700. Do you feel every time that the Cardinals go on the road that the team that you're playing against is cheering for Albert? You know, in a way, yes. And I think that's what makes what Albert, Albert, right? I mean, baseball fans, whether they're in St. Louis, Phoenix, anywhere, really, maybe Cubs fans, maybe are the only ones that are not. Um, <laughs> yeah, are, they don't care. Right, but they're able to at least appreciate what they're seeing. I mean, this is a historic, generational, once-in-a-lifetime player that they're witnessing being able to end his career in such a way that doesn't often happen. Usually when you 
bring back a player that means so much to an organization in their final year of their career. They can fade out, go and go away rather inauspiciously. But Albert has been a mainstay in that lineup. And you can sense even from the press box when Albert goes and steps up into the plate, you know, obviously you hear the stadium, you hear the ovation, the fans, but writers, they'll put their pens down. They'll close their laptops and we'll just watch <laughs> because you never know what you're going to see from Albert Pujols. And I think that's whether you're a Cardinals fan or not, something that transcends game regardless of fanhood. Katie Wu, she covers the St. Louis Cardinals for the athletic joining us here on the Arizona sports line. So, Correct me if I'm wrong. You traveled to Arizona this past week when the Cardinals were here, correct? I did not. Oh, you I did not. not. That was my one weekend off, and I apparently missed a lot. Ah, oh, shoot. But either way, I know that you cover the team close enough that you want to know enough about the opponent going in. And this Diamondbacks team this season, there wasn't a lot expected. I mean, they matched the lowest record in the league last year. But there's a lot of young talent that a lot of these fan base is excited about. So I, I'm curious, from an outsider's perspective... What was your knowledge of the team going into that weekend? And then what is your opinion of this Diamondbacks team now, three games having played them later? Well, it's interesting. You know, I grew up in California and obviously went to Arizona State, so I'm quite familiar with the NF West. But from an outsider's perspective, it is tough for me to get really excited about any team in that division because the Dodgers are just so continuously powerful and right. it stands throughout their major league roster into their minor league roster. Really, it's quite amazing that they're able to sustain this level of consistency. And then you look a little bit down south to San Diego. To, to their credit, they have spent the money. They are clearly committed to winning. That execution hasn't always followed through. But those two teams are really hard to compete with when you're the Giants, the Rockies, and the D-backs. I will say early in the year, we had conversations with a couple of players and the Cardinals manager about how sneaky good the Diamondbacks pitching was in the first half. And now I think we're, we're uh, kind of switching the focus to how sneaky good Christian Walker is. Right. Um, well, he's probably not getting enough uh, conversation just based on where the Diamondbacks are in the standings this season, but that young talent is getting better. I wouldn't go out there and, and say, you know, this is a team to watch in 2023 quite yet based on their opponents, but they do have some young talent, like you mentioned, that's going to come on the rise. And the best thing about baseball, guys, as you know, things Stranger things have happened. So yes. for me, the Diamondbacks would be an interesting team to keep my eye on over the offseason to see if they make any upgrades. The farm system is certainly there. They'll just, they're just, I think, a couple pieces away from really being into contention. We're talking with Katie Wu, St. Louis Cardinals beat writer for The Athletic. Be careful how you answer this next question, Katie. If Paul okay. Goldschmidt wins the Triple Crown this year, wins the MVP, and then he's Hall of Fame eligible in a Uh-oh. couple of years, I know what's coming. which hat is he wearing? Oh, good question. I think it depends how he finishes his Cardinals career, right? I mean, his extension stands through a couple more seasons, and he'd be certainly putting up the production. It'd be, for me, I would say if he, it depends on if he wins the World Series in St. Louis or not. Oh. That would be, okay. if he doesn't win a World Series in St. Louis, I think it's more of a toss-up between the D-backs and, and Cardinals. But if he wins a championship with the Cardinals, I think that's the hat he goes with. But it would also wouldn't surprise me if Paul Goldschmidt just did, like, no hat. Because he's just mm. so consistent, so... uh even keeled. I don't know. That's a great question. It's something to keep uh, your eye on. But I would agree that he's at least worthy of health in consideration. I mean, I even remember when Goldschmidt was traded to St. Louis, and I can't remember who had 44 at the time. I think it was like Kyle Farnsworth. I don't even know. But he was very non-committal to the number when he switched, and we all just knew, oh, that's Paul Goldschmidt. He doesn't care. It doesn't bother him so much. Hey, Katie, I just wanted to throw it out there. Tyler Drake's going to be coming on in about 15 minutes or so, and we were having some memories of Dr. Reed's class when we were all just little scaps trying to learn how to write and 
read mostly for me. So I was feeling pretty nostalgic setting up today's show, and I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. I saw that Tyler Drake was coming on after, and I went to I threw it back right back to that same classroom, the projects, the conversations. Good times. I can't believe we haven't aged a bit since that class. No, definitely not. Katie, <laughs> thanks so much. I know how busy you are. I really appreciate it. Hey, guys. Thanks so much. Enjoy your weekend. You too. That's Katie Wu. She covers the St. Louis Cardinals for The Athletic. I really liked her outsider's opinion of the Diamondbacks. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that everyone's starting to get the idea that the Diamondbacks are changing, that they're at a crossroads, that right now you're starting to see some of the young talent. I mean, how many great plays has Alec Thomas made in center field in the last couple yesterday. months? Yeah, just yesterday alone. <laughs> it's funny. I was scrolling through Twitter last night, right? I'm laying in bed and I'm scrolling through and there's a highlight of Alec Thomas. I'm like, I got to watch that. Mm-hmm. I click on it and I watch it and I was like, wow, that was great. And then the next tweet is another highlight of Alec Thomas. And it just says another great catch by Alec Thomas. And I was like, well, I don't need to watch that. I just watched it. <laughs> and then somebody pointed it out to me. They're like, no, that's a different play. It's a different one. And Dalton Varsho robbing a home run last night. Man, have I ever been more wrong about a catcher playing in right field? (laughs) That's so crazy. Coming up next, a lot of big stories in the NFL this week. So let's take a look around the league next on Arizona Sports Saturday. 98.7 FM, Arizona's Sports Station. Arizona Sports Saturday takes you around the NFL. That's right. You hear the NFL Films music. You know what that means. It means we got to take a look around the rest of the NFL because Cardinals are just one of 32. So, well, they're one of 32. They're one of four in the NFC West, which is where I want to start because last night the Seattle Seahawks blew it against the Dallas Cowboys. Part of that destruction was Drew Locke throwing three interceptions, one of which was, I don't know if you saw it, Steve. It was... It was like he forgot what team he was throwing to. It was that bad. So you got to wonder, was it coincidence that right after the game, Pete Carroll could not have run up to the podium He could have not gotten there faster. To announce Geno Smith. Uh, Geno Smith's our quarterback. He's starting on week one. You know what's amazing? And I'm going to see if I can find this cut real quick. But it was literally this week when Pete Carroll was asked about the starting job and like what his plan is, et cetera, et cetera. And he was not ready to name a starting QB. He's ready now. Yeah. He's ready. He's ready now. He wasn't ready only a few days ago. Gino's been the guy in the lead position the whole time, and I protected that thought with uh, you know throughout. And, and he's done a really nice job. He's been very consistent. Um, so we'll just see what happens. And, and you know, there's two more weeks of practice too after this. So there's with the timeline. I had a set thought on the, I mean, what we would do with the timeline, but that got disrupted. And so um, we're you know we're going to use all the time we need. We're going to use all the time we need. Nope. And all that time was <laughs> three interceptions in a Friday preseason game, and then. Boom. Yeah. Geno's our number one. Drew Locke made that decision pretty easy for the for the Seahawks. Listen, I'm not super set on on Geno being their quarterback either. I don't think I'm either one on of them is all that good. I'm set on it because I know the Seahawks will be bad this year. Yeah. And that's only going to help the Cardinals. Oh, believe me, I'm cool with it as an outsider. But at the same time, like if you're in Seattle, you you got to be feeling pretty bad about the situation they well, have going see. on. You uh, traded away an all-pro quarterback, and now your competition was left to Drew Locke and Geno Smith. Yeah, I mean, their running backs continue to go through injury every single year. They've got two really good wide receivers who just don't have anybody to throw them the ball. I I did a fantasy football draft. I actively avoided DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett because I'm like, I don't trust whoever's going to be throwing the ball to them. It was funny. It was the same conversation that we were having about Broncos receivers for years in fantasy. And now it's the opposite. How the turntables, as uh, Michael Scott used to say. Another divisional storyline. And this one probably 
it was the biggest, but now it's kind of the second biggest. We're not going to touch on the other one. But Rams and Bengals had a joint practice earlier this week. It was canceled early. This was the second of the two joint practices. Canceled early because of in-practice fighting. Fighting to the level that Aaron Donald was wielding, dual-wielding, I should say, Bengals helmets and whacking people with them. Why would you try to fight Aaron Donald? Has anybody seen that man? That man is like four men. I'm convinced he is the strongest man in the world until proven otherwise. Why would you instigate him? Listen, these these joint practices, is that what they're called? They, yes. They often get physical to the point where guys want to fight each other. I mean, this was the Super Bowl last year. Well, what this reminded a lot of people of was Miles Garrett whipping off uh, yep. Mason Rudolph's helmet and then whacking him in the head with it. Aaron Donald or Miles Garrett, are they're the two biggest human beings I've ever seen in my life. And giving them a, basically a weapon, yeah. why would you want to go anywhere near that human being? So now the question is, will the Rams decide to discipline Aaron right. Donald for what happened? My guess is probably not because he was considering retirement, apparently was very close to it. They just won the Super Bowl and he decided to come back. There's no way that they're going to punish him for that. So for those of you wondering like, oh, why isn't the NFL immediately stepping in and suspending him like Miles Garrett when he was suspended six games? Practices are not dictated by the NFL. They're governed, well, to use a political term, I guess, they are governed by the teams. So the teams have full responsibility as to whether or not they will hand out punishment. And I think you and I can both guess, Steve, that if the Rams had to choose between suspending Aaron Donald or not, they're probably not going to. Probably not. Do we know whose helmets came off, by the way? I don't know. Just look in the crowd for the two guys like, that aren't wearing Was it the quarterback helmets. or was it the offensive lineman? You know what I mean? Yeah. Either way, like those are some industrial blunt weapons when used in that fashion. Like it's dangerous. Rule number one of the NFL: Don't fight Aaron Donald. Don't fight him at all. Uh, sadder news this week: Probably known for, among other things, being a great quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, but probably one of the most iconic sports photos in history. Len Dawson passed away earlier this week. The former Kansas City Chiefs quarterback smoking on the sidelines with a fresca and a folding chair. At this one of the things, I mean, like, you and I were baseball guys, right? It's one of the reasons that I've always respected Babe Ruth and players of his generation mm-hmm. so much is because they didn't need steroids. They didn't need performance enhancing. They didn't need the great nutrition. He did it on beer, pizza, and say, cigars. He just needed a pint and a smoke, and he was right. good. And he's like, oh, hey, I'm going to put my smoke down while I go hit a home run real quick. <laughs> and then he comes back and picks up the cigar again. The players of, of that ilk... There's just an aura about them that's different than today's athlete. Today's athletes are pristine. They're faster than ever. They're bigger than ever. They're stronger than ever. But there's something about that old-timey athlete that people just respect. You respect it a lot more because, I mean, they didn't know about any of the health-related things that we know now. They were more relatable, too. Like you could really the older guys say they don't make them like they used to. Right. No, they don't. It's crazy. R.I.P. R.I.P. Dawson. Also, the Chiefs did a touching moment. They did the, the iconic huddle where Dawson is just facing the other 10 guys. They did that with Mahomes and the other 10 Chiefs. Cool moment. Pretty really cool. cool moment. Speaking of quarterbacks, Carolina. We knew this either earlier in the week or towards the end of last week. Baker Mayfield 
is going to be the starting QB for the Carolina Panthers. And it's convenient now that he will be because the quarterback behind him, Sam Darnold, was carted off with an ankle injury in their preseason game yesterday. Yeah, even if that hadn't happened, I, I was always pretty convinced that Baker Mayfield was going to be the starting quarterback in Carolina. If you look at what happened with Baker in, in Cleveland, I don't think he gets enough credit. I mean, he took a team that was like 0-16 twice in a row and won a playoff game in Pittsburgh. I don't. I don't think he gets the credit. He just, I'm not saying he's a world beater. I'm not saying he's going to go out and win the Super Bowl. He gets a bad rap. He does, and for I understand. A, for he did a some, dude that lived in Brown Stadium, he did some. Yeah, right. He did some <laughs> dumb stuff, especially in college. The whole like suspended for half a game hey, thing yeah, and all yeah, that. Yeah. But I think that he's got a bad rep for I don't know many different reasons. He's a pretty decent quarterback in this league. I was never under the impression that Sam Darnold was going to be the starter. I mean, he's he definitely hasn't done anything terrible to the level of some of the other people that we're hearing about in the news right now. Baker Mayfield's just unapologetically Baker Mayfield. And, you know, I hope this opportunity works out really, really well for him. I think he's a better leader than Darnold, too. He's also got an opportunity in a division that is really, really weak compared to some of the other divisions in the NFL. That's and a good point. looks miserable. That's a good point. Speaking of Sam Darnold, mentioned Darnold injured. Well, one of the former pass targets he had when he was a member of the Jets, Denzel Mims, apparently very unhappy to be a Jet. Uh, his agent, Ron Slavin, had met with Joe Douglas, the GM of the Jets, and said, basically, it's time. Denzel has tried in good faith, but it's clear he does not have a future with the Jets. And close quote. You can read the writing on the wall. Denzel Mims wants to be traded. Is a receiver, right? Yes. All right. Well, I'm thinking about the receivers on the Jets. I, listen, the Jets are not impressive by anyone's standards, but they have kind of loaded up a little bit. They've added quite a bit. I mean, you've got Elijah Moore, who a lot of people are high on. Corey Davis, they paid a lot of money for. Jamison Crowder is still a pretty good player. Keelan Cole has experience and in this And then they draft uh, Garrett Wilson, right? Garrett Wilson. So I, that's a pretty crowded room. I don't think anybody necessarily looks like a QB1 on your fantasy team there. But that's a lot of dudes, and a lot of dudes with experience, so i that's a tough room to begin with. Love me a lot of experienced dudes, right? Uh, to close this one out, uh, Robert Sala, the head coach of the Jets, he spoke with Mims, and he was quoted as saying, he's one of our better players, and we've got to find a way to make this work, close quote. Uh, I guess in the presser, did not dismiss the idea of a trade, however. Wait, so. that was the quote from the New York... Jets or Nets? Which one did you say? Jets. Okay. That sounds like did something I that would have come. No, no, no. I'm saying oh. that sounds like something that could have come from the Nets oh. in well, the last couple of weeks. Well, Sean Marks has been trying to make things work in Brooklyn. And well, he's one of our better players, I'll Kevin you, Durant. I'll tell you what. Turns out it worked in his favor. All right. Coming up next, we got to turn back to the Cardinals. A few hours away from this game against the Titans, but it's been a busy, busy week for the Cardinals. we got to get caught up with our Cardinals insider, Tyler Drake. We'll do that next on Arizona Sports Saturday.